Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob, and welcome to Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction, a podcast brought to you by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs and hosted by me and my sidekick, Tammy. Say hi, Tammy. Hi, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Our show provides useful answers to your most asked questions about cheating, betrayal, and addiction. Let's get started. Two years post D-Day, can you help S-A-P-A-L-A husbands understand how important it is for betrayed partners to see, in all caps, consistent, committed, and mindful recovery work for us to even want to work on our connection with them. No recovery work equals no desire to be with them. Hmm. Yeah, I I don't know how this person is doing in terms of con- consistent, committed, I, mindful I would recovery say- work. I would say this person is the partner who is going, my addict is not doing consistent work. And why would I want to be involved? Right. No, I got that. I just don't, I, I I don't know what uh, consistent and committed would look like, but I think it would be very much about something you would see. It doesn't mean they have to be happy and, and enjoying themselves, but they're going and they're being consistent. Um, So, I don't think that, how do I say this? I think that only you can help him understand. There's a lot of like second person here, like how can you help? How can betrayed? I would say this is really about you. How can I? And what I would say to you, it's about your setting your boundaries and maintaining them. Um, you know, no addict seeks recovery unless they are pushed to. And if this, I don't know, husband, if this man is comfortable, um, the way he's living, having his evenings to watch Netflix instead of going to meetings, you know, that's fine with him as long as you don't have the kind of response that he couldn't tolerate. So, you know, it really, it isn't up to you what he does, but it is up to you to take care of yourself. If you are in pain sitting around watching this person not do anything, I think you get to decide how you want to spend your time and how you want to take care of yourself. And it may not be around him. By the way, someone like this would not be sleeping in my bed, for sure. Um, there would be boundaries and structure in the house. And, uh, you know, you want to get even close to me, you're going to be showing me and committing to recovery. Um, the other thing is I wrote a book about this called Out of the Doghouse, a relationship-saving guide for men caught cheating. It's the longest subtitle, a relationship-saving guide for men caught cheating. Tammy, did you know that that is the, my number one book out of 10? Oh, Really? More than Sex Addiction 101, people buy doghouse. And uh, well, that makes sense because a lot of people, you know, don't perceive that there is sex addiction, you know, in their life. You know, that it's just a cheat. I'm just cheating, you know, and and some of them may just be cheating. So I'm not, you know, trying to relabel, but but I can see, you know, for the people that got caught, you should write a book for the uh, relationship saving guy for the people who aren't caught yet. Um, I think that's what we have a treatment center for is to wake them up so they don't get in worse trouble. But in any case, I did write this book because, and I really want you to hear this, men do not understand how to repair relationship damage that they've created with a woman. Men are problem solvers, but we like the problem to be solved. Like, well, it's been three weeks or it's been three months or, and we don't like those emotional parts. We like them to go away. Like, aren't you going to be nicer to me or aren't you going to, we do not understand what kind of pain we've put you through. In other words, we don't understand the depth of the problem that we've created. So we don't really understand how to fix it. 
And that's why I wrote Doghouse, because flowers and I love you and I'm so sorry and please forgive me and I didn't mean it or I'm just a sex addict. You, I didn't know what I was doing. All that crap doesn't really help at all. Um, and so I wrote a book to try to help men understand what they needed to do to restore a relationship with a woman that they'd broken. And if they don't want to do that, there are many opportunities to book and say, you know, you don't have to stay. You don't have to do all this hard work. I've had husbands say, well, maybe I could just leave this relationship and then I can do whatever I wanted. And the answer is, yes, you can leave the relationship and do whatever you want. But if you want to be in this relationship, and I made a book full of lists, there are things that you have to do in ways you have to act to earn your way back into the house, which why the which is why the word doghouse is in the title. Tammy, you hear this question all the time. What are you thinking? Well, I was going to add, and yes, you can leave the relationship, but if you don't change, you're going to do it to the next relationship. I was talking to somebody who unfortunately had been through four major relationships and children in, in them and was still not at the point where he was willing to change. And so I'm like, you're going to keep doing this until and unless you get help to stop. So, um, I, you know, I also think I hear often going back to what the uh, cheater says that when are you going to get over this? That one's so painful for betrayed partners. Like, you know, when are you going to forgive me? When are you going to get over this? Like, I haven't done it for three weeks. So, you know, can't you see I'm completely different now? And why aren't you trusting me? And that's really painful for partners because, again, it's so um, unempathetic. It's not showing any caring or acknowledgement of the pain that they've put through consistently. And the ongoing lying adds to that. Next question. Well, I just want to think about the last sentence, which is no recovery work, no desire to be with them. So this person has just given us a paragraph about no recovery work. And so if that means you have no desire to be with him, then I would begin to think about, okay, uh, how am I going to eat meals where we're not sitting together? How am I going to be in this room if, if I don't want to be here? How, maybe I should take a time out from talking with this person. I mean, no desire to be with them is not just a concept for the future. You said no recovery work. That's not happening now. So I think you need to think about acting on your desire to not be with them uh, in some concrete way. Uh, because I think that will make you feel better. Um, Tammy, let's move on. I love that idea. Okay, next question. Hi, Dr. Robin, Tammy. Thank you for the time you, you two provide. My question is, how does a recovering SA view their uh, BP, betrayed partner, who chooses to stay? Uh, Can an SA truly respect someone that they have treated with so little respect in their deception and betrayal? That's a great question. You deal with this all the time with our clients that are in our treatment program. Well, I think that it's difficult for a spouse all the way across the board in terms of this kind of question, like, if you loved me, you wouldn't do this to me. And the answer is, I could love you and worship you and adore you, and you could be the most beautiful person in the world, and I would still do this because it's my problem. So I think there's a difference between my desire or interest in treating you with disrespect and, bet and betrayal versus how it leaves you feeling. I don't think sex addicts are out there seeking to uh, disrespect our partners by leaving them feeling deceived. I don't, we are, but that's what we're doing. Our intention is to lose ourselves in this behavior and you happen to be, and the damage to you is like a byproduct. 
you know, but we're really not thinking about you at all. So just to say that part. The other thing is, I think I've done some research in the five treatment programs that I've created on this issue, including women's programming at, at one time. And I would say somewhere, Tammy, around 80 to 85 percent of our couples stay together. So maybe 90. And I will consider that personally a good track record. Um, and I think that has continued to seeking integrity where most of the people that go through, a lot of the wives and spouses will say a lot of things at the beginning that are not very, uh, very welcoming of the relationship continuing. But by the end, when they hear that the men we're working with have begun to come into themselves and begin to speak from their heart and begin to, as this person said, have empathy for their betrayed partner, um, I think treatment does make that kind of difference that helps you understand that they do love you, they do care, and they're just terribly broken. Um, I, so I wrote a book called Prodependence. It's like Rob's book night. And I think if I were to look at you having stayed, I would have tremendous respect for you that you were willing to stay despite all the ways that I've hurt you. And Again, I don't think that every recovering person gets this, but I do know the guys who go through treatment get this, is they really get how much they've hurt a spouse. And nobody leaves us without understanding how much damage they've caused to their relationship. So one of the th ways I think we view you spouses is with fear that now you really know all this, we're going to lose you. I think we view you with anger sometimes, like how come I have to jump through all these hoops to make this person happy? I think we view you with um, awe that you were willing to stay with us. I mean, think about what it means to me. If I hate myself, I can't believe I did these things. I wouldn't want anybody, I, I wouldn't live with anybody who'd done all this. And you choose to stay with me. I would even think to myself, wow, this person still sees some good in me. That's how I would look at it as an addict, not because we're all focused on ourselves. So we're not thinking that you are just are, are not taking care of yourself or don't deserve respect for staying with us, we think, wow, there must be some good part of us that that person sees that I don't see in myself that has made them want to stay. So I, I think that this concern that you are going to uh, feel disrespected and not considered with uh, valuable is something you might feel. You know, I'm more concerned that you are worried that you are not doing something respectable. And I want you to know that I, I have incredible compassion for and, and excitement for people who want to go into back into their hurt relationships and make them better. So I think you're a hero in my mind. Um, and I don't think any addict would would believe that you're staying is anything more than a gift. Well said. OK, next question. I moved out of our bedroom three months ago because he was not disclosing slips, relapses. He doesn't want to do the work. I need to feel safe. Accuses me of abandoning him. Oh, sorry. Um, and I can't get this to. Um, Just throw it against the wall. That's what usually yeah, works for me. I, well, I was trying to do it on my computer. I'm sorry. Okay, I moved out of our bedroom three months ago because he was not disclosing relapses and slips. He doesn't want to do the work. I need to feel safe. Accuses me of abandoning him. He's emotionally, verbally abusive. Why wouldn't his CSAT share with him how his actions or lack thereof are resulting in my safety measures and what he needs to be doing so I feel safe again? Okay, so let me just start with accuses me of abandoning him. No addict is a victim. We are the cause of the problem, not victims of the problem. So if you choose to keep distance from me because you don't feel safe, 
you're not abandoning me. I abandon you by not doing the things to keep you feeling safe. So, uh, and the whole emotionally verbally abusive, I mean, I don't know what that means exactly, but I can tell you that, you know, first of all, if there's physical abuse, you know, you need to change the locks. If there are children around and there's violence or even abuse, I would, and I say this a lot, like couples just sometimes don't realize how profoundly they're affecting their children with the anger and the hurt and the disappointment and the, you know, all the stuff that they have to watch. And if there's verbal or emotional abuse going on in your home and your children are witnessing that or experiencing it in you, that really concerns me a a lot. Um, I don't know what, First of all, if I am a therapist and I am your therapist, it I cannot disclose to anyone else what you're doing. Uh, I can't. You could tell me that you, you know, I, I, I don't know. You could tell me you pushed someone in the ocean and drowned them last week. And as a therapist, I can't do anything about that because they're already dead. If you told me that you planned on pushing someone and you're bringing them out to a cliff tonight, then I could do something about it because I'd have to protect them. So no CSAT is going to call you and say, hey, partner, let me tell you what's going on in therapy that you don't know about. We're just not allowed to do that. Now, you may have a release that is open for you to talk to his therapist or talk to each other. Personally, I would rather do it with the person in attendance. If I had a concern, and I think this is good for addiction therapy. If I am married to you and I and you have a concern about my behavior, I think you are very welcome in my therapy to, bre- to come in and express your concerns. And I would hope that your spouse's CSAT as a former therapist that works with sex addicts, I would hope that therapist is open to your leaving messages, to your, you know, you're not going to be involved in the therapy, but you have information to provide that would be helpful for the therapy. And so I would think any therapist would welcome that in this situation. Um, I'll just say one more thing to you guys. Sorry, Tammy, to go on and on, but these are all related things. Um, as a, I don't know how long this person has been ACSAT or has worked in this part of the field, but you have to understand how our clients, the addicts, sound. They do the, let's say they're doing really well. They're working on the recovery. They're going to meetings They're, but they say to everyone in group and everyone individually, oh, my wife is such a pain in the butt or, oh my God, she's such a wish or a witch or oh, my husband is driving me crazy. And why do they say that? Because they're they don't want you to be angry and they don't want you to be unhappy and they don't want you to to you know not cheer for their recovery 3 months in which you can't because you're angry at her so they go to groups and organizations and therapists and complain about you and i can remember being a therapist 15 years ago probably longer maybe where i was sitting in men's groups you know, week after week, and these guys were all complaining about their spouses. And we used to think, wow, you spouses are really crazy. Look what these guys have to say about you. But then we realized that the reality of you spouses was not what these guys were saying. So I'm just saying that a CSAT or any therapist might be fooled by some of the ways that your spouse presents the relationship and presents you and might be very surprised to find out you're a very different person because addicts love to be the victim and have people go, oh, I'm so sorry your wife is so difficult. That's much easier than our facing how we made your life miserable. Um, Tammy, I know you probably want to move on because they went on forever. No, but well, no, no. I have a couple of thoughts on this. I do. Uh, so first of all, why did you move out of the bedroom? Why is he not out of the bedroom? That was my first thought of like, why did you have to, you know, I mean, I would have gone, you're out. Um, that would have been me. Um, but I'm, yeah, the whole thing that Dr. Rob just talked about with the CSAT, um, 
but I'm also going three months ago because he wasn't disclosing slips and relapses. I don't think he ever was in recovery. So I, I would think it's, he's just been an active addiction. This has been going on a long time. And if there is, the, the CSAT needs to know that he is lying to his CSAT if he's saying everything's going well and that things are not going well. And Dr. Rob has talked about this before, a higher level of help. If this isn't enough, then he needs to see his therapist twice a week. He needs, what else is he doing? If, if he's just going to see his, even if it's the most amazing CSAT and he's doing that once a week for 50 minutes and that's all he's doing, this is what you get. This is this is pretty typical because you know addiction is twenty four seven. So fifty minutes a week, you know, is a drop in the bucket to try to change stuff that's years and decades old. So we have a treatment program. You know, he sounds like a prime candidate for that, and I would be happy to tell you more about that. So by the way, Tammy, as long as you're doing a little bit of marketing, let me stop here and say that it's we not have marketing; online... it's resource sharing. Okay. But we still have a great program. We'd love you to come mm -hmm. to us because that pays for all the free stuff we do for everyone else. Trust mm -hmm. me like this. But I was going to say something about uh, being emotionally abusive. Oh, doesn't want to. Oh, I was just going to send your market. I was going to mention the courses because we offer courses all year round for men and women who have really been struggling with recovery. And they've been getting some of what they need in therapy. But the kind of work that addiction healing requires um, there's writing there's journaling there's exercises there's an educational component one of the things i love about doing residential treatment and iops and stuff that i've done where i get to spend a few weeks with clients is that we lecture every day and we educate every day and everybody's got homework every day and in fact you guys at seeking integrity tonight i hope you do have homework because i'm going to look for it tomorrow when i come in to see you but in any case i think if you have someone in therapy have them take a course because at least they'll get a balanced sense of they'll kind of gain, you know, we need to learn here as well as here. And I've always found that therapy is limiting in that way because you don't really get the educational piece like outpatient therapy. So there are other things that this person can do to begin to learn how to make you feel safe. But is he willing to learn how to make you feel safe? And that, you know, that's up to him. I put a link in the chat, but for those listening on YouTube on seekingintegrity.com, under online workshops and lectures, you'll see a variety of offerings, including the monthly offering for Sex and Porn Addiction 101. We have a new one, Porn Addiction 101. We've got the Chem Sex with Dr. David. We've got a couples healing workshop. So there's a number of resources on seekingintegrity.com, all delivered in an online format. So, okay, next question. My essay husband and I have been having great conversations we recently talked about how open he is to suggestion. When we met, he visited me at home often. And on his birthday, he said he could come over. And I said, we could go out. He agreed. When we were dating, I had to move out of my rental and did not know where I was going. He said he would rent a place and my kids and I could hang out a lot. I suggested we move in together and he agreed. I told him if we moved in together, I would want it to be a long-term and warned him about the huge responsibility of an instant family. He agreed. He never proposed, but after two years, I said, maybe we should set a date. He agreed. Flash forward 25 years and he began seeking or seeing legal sex workers. The second lady suggested they communicate in person daily, spend more time together to relax and talk about the sex, have dinners together and send her money for basic needs <laughs> while he was on the phone. He agreed to all of this. 
I guess I don't know. There was no question on that. So that's oh, okay. I can say a few yeah. things about this. Please. Um, well, first of all, what's a legal sex worker? I just have to ask. Well, I think I if you're think... in certain states, you know, there's, I mean, I, I oh, think, like in, you know, in, in Nevada, in Las Vegas. Like yeah. I mean, there mm -hmm. are certain states where, you know, it is legalized. And I think more states okay. have done that. So anyway. Well, and it also may be people in strip clubs or who are doing sex work that isn't necessarily True. paying me to have sex with you, mm -hmm. but it could be paying me to dance in front of yours. So anyway, I just want to understand that. Um, so there are two issues here. First of all, I'm not sure what the first part about the history and moving in together and, you know, all that was 25 years ago. So I'm not sure I understand how that relates to him what, what the second stuff is, which is sex workers. And can you maybe help Tammy? Do you have a thought about that? I'm not sure, but it seems like he is, like he is conflict avoidant. So if somebody says something, oh, okay. And so now, now there's a sex worker who's saying, we should have dinner, we should meet, we should whatever. And he's like, oh, okay. So to me, I think the correlation could be all of this history is like, okay. And now he's seeing a sex worker and going, oh, okay. So how, so what, what do you want to do about this? Um, this person you've been with for 25 years is seeing, I want to use nice words, sex workers. So what do you want to do with that? You know, it's not only that he wants to have sex with this person. He also wants to have a personal relationship with them, spend time together, relax, talk, have dinners. That's a relationship. So this is not seeing a sex worker. This is he wants to have an affair. Well, he's already probably having the affair and has been for a while. So there isn't a question really that you've asked, but you said he agreed to all of this. And I would say, and I've agreed to see a lawyer. Um, that's where I would be. Um, this is, you know, completely unacceptable. And this is a good reason to kick somebody out, by the way. Go be with your, I hate to use bad words, go be with your sex worker. You know, have a good time. You don't need me. I'm going to go see a lawyer and divide up our funds. Um, this is an awful story. Yes. Yeah. Next question. Why don't the addicts see the learning, uh, see that learning about the effects of betrayal trauma by reading, doing workshops, podcasts, and implementing the tools are what we need to show that they are remorseful and care about the damage they've caused and the path we're in. Discovery was three years ago this month. I'm the betrayed spouse. Why don't you some start of them do. I'll, well, I'll I was glad to. Yeah, I mean, some some of them do. Some of them actively engage and get the help they need to be able to tolerate the discomfort because the challenge is if I start seeing how I've hurt you, oh my gosh, that's like one of those terribly uncomfortable feelings that I was avoiding at all costs. I don't want to do that. So, so, you know, it's very triggering. So they have to have the support and, and stability to be able to handle the uncomfortable in a and not run away, not shame. Yeah, not, yeah, not, not run away to shame, not relapse, not, I mean, whatever the problematic thing is. So, so someone who is on a recovery path does learn it, but it's little, it's increments. It's not like they wake up one day and go, oh my gosh, I read the most amazing book by Dr. Rob Weiss called Out of the Doghouse. And now I understand completely it, it's, it's all, it's relearning, it's retraining. Yeah, I do agree with Tammy that people are starting from scratch with their ability to relate intimately and to be kind. And, you know, we have spent, if you're an active sex act, you have spent years avoiding 
uh, showing you my feelings, what I'm really doing. You know, I have lied to you for many years, not just with what I did, but also how I how I act toward you. And so I have worked really hard to not let you know what I was doing and not feel bad I what I was doing. And now I'm in a situation where I'm being asked to be much more open about how I feel and much more, and it isn't going to look good. You're going to be angry. I'm going to feel ashamed. And as Tammy said, those are the feelings I acted out over, you know, feeling uncomfortable, feeling like I let someone down, feeling like they might abandon me. I mean, all of that stuff. But um, um, there's a piece in here that I just want to say, and implementing the tools. And then you write about to show he's remorseful. I assume it's a he, it could be she. And I think those are different things. I mean, this person needs to implement tools so that they can stay sober, so they can become a better person, so that they can be honest, you know, so they can not hurt other people. I mean, all of that. But I don't necessarily mean that, no, that those tools are going to make them remorseful. I've seen people grab those tools and, and say, I'm, I'm done with this relationship. It wasn't the right marriage. So I'm, and they were right. Uh, you know, I'm not saying their acting out was right, but I'm just say, saying that as we self-explore and we grow and we look at ourselves and we look more clearly at our relationships, I, I might not want to heal it with you, you know, but I would want to know that. And I would, if I were you, I'd want to know that. In other words, I would want, if I were, you, I would want to know, look, are you sincerely committed to a relationship with you? I mean, moving down that path, or do you really just want to do whatever it is you want? Because I can't live with one of those choices and I can live with the other. It's really about what you can tolerate. And after three years, I don't know. Um, I think it's time for you to stand up and say, this is what I need. And this is how I need it. And here is the bottom line. If you're Un, not just unable, but unwilling to really work at that. Um, but we do hear a lot of recovery people who are not very nice to their spouses, even though they're in recovery. And um, and I would often say that, you know, you can get sober reasonably quickly with the right help, but it can take a long time to learn how to be a good person. And especially if you've been lying and hiding and cheating, you know, now we're going in the other direction. We're supposed to be empathic and kind. Last thing. Um, when you all ask why we don't, addicts don't feel more empathic, more um, understanding of your pain, I'm going to say something that may sound like an excuse, but it's just a reality. If I was never taught to be empathic for my own pain, if I was never taught, no one ever showed me any empathy for what I was going through. If I had to hide, grew up having to hide my feelings because I didn't think anyone was going to meet my needs, just because I get sober doesn't mean I, inside of me, intuitively understand what you need because I never got it. And that stuff is very psychotherapy oriented. Um, do you mind if I tell a story about that, Tammy? Go for it. So when I was an early younger therapist, young, I was young once, when I was a young therapist, I was treating uh, children who were being abused. I was a young social worker. And, you know, I would ask uh, the, the more experienced people around me, uh, how, you know, I'd get a file to stick on a kid and they'd been abused a number of times by the same parent. And I, and I would ask, you know, how can a parent how can a kid get hit like that and not do something about it? And you go to the kid and you say, Hey, what happened? And he says, Oh, I fell down or, you know, mom dropped something or they will never let the, give the parents responsibility or any of that. They will of course blame blame themselves. 
So I went to a professional who I was training me and I said, I don't really understand this. Does, isn't it true that most men who hit their children were hit themselves? And the answer is yes, most men who hit their children were hit themselves as children. And then I said, well, I don't understand it. If I was hit as a kid, I would never want to hit my child. Like I would understand how painful and how scary and and the therapist said, no, 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 you don't understand. If you grow up and you just think, you know, I was a kid who needed, needed a lot of direction. And I, my, I'm the kind of kid who needed to be thrown over his dad's lap. And my dad's discipline or my mom's discipline was really needed because I was a tough kid. If they're in that place, then it's easy for them to say, and my kid needs it too. But the person who realizes how much they hurt, how unhappy that childhood was, how much they longed for affection instead of abuse, the, once they get in touch with how painful it was to be hit, the feelings around it, then they can't hit their children anymore. And so if I can betray you and violate you and hurt you um, and not feel anything, it's probably because I was betrayed and hurt and violated. And I haven't really gotten in touch with the degree to which that rules my life today. So that's a very long psychological explanation that may, much, may sound like I'm asking you to feel sorry for us addicts. And I'm not. I'm simply saying that we may not have the skill set to give you what you want because we may not necessarily have it for ourselves. Um, and that's a journey that goes beyond sobriety. That's a lot of healing, a lot of therapy, a lot of work. So thank you, Tammy, uh, for letting me say that. Thank you for listening to this episode of Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction. If our words have led you to seek help, please reach out. You can always find us at www.seekingintegrity.com.